Turn then, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to think about one uh, verse in particular uh, in that passage, in that chapter. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat the fact that we have an enemy. Uh, his name is Satan, and he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is wickedness personified. He is real. But in that sense, to use that metaphor, he is wickedness personified. As God is the holy one, only holy, Satan is the wicked one, only wicked. And his purpose is to, to destroy, to destroy God's creation and to destroy God's people. Uh, he's out to get us. He is out to do us untold damage. At one time, his strategy was to blind our minds so that we could not see the truth and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he failed. Praise God, he failed to keep us from seeing the truth of the gospel, the attraction of the gospel, and the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Uh, God's purpose was that we would come to know him, and Satan, despite his very best efforts, could do nothing to prevent that. And God caused the light to shine into our darkened hearts and minds, and we saw our sins. Satan had told us, don't believe that, it's a load of rubbish. God showed it to us and convinced us of it. Uh, God showed us Jesus Christ, our need of him, and that he was our hope, and he would be our saviour. And Satan said, that's not true. Don't listen. Don't be deceived. But God convinced us of it and gave us faith in Jesus Christ. And we now belong to Jesus. But Satan does not leave us alone. And he is seeking to do great damage to this work of grace that God is doing in our lives. Praise God, we are safe in Jesus Christ. We cannot be destroyed. Satan cannot take us away from Jesus. But Satan can do us harm uh, in this life if we are not careful. We are in a battle. Paul makes that clear here, doesn't he? He speaks about the fact that we wrestle. Uh, we are in a fight we're in a struggle. And he tells us that that fight, that struggle, that wrestle in verse 12 is not against flesh and blood, although it may have a human face and it may be uh, carried out to some degree by human beings. Uh, there's something much bigger behind all that. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we're in a battle, we're in a war. Uh, and we're in a war with a very fierce enemy. Uh, we're not to um, overestimate or overstate his power but we're not to underestimate his power and influence either. In fact, Paul makes it clear here to the Ephesians, and he would to us tonight, that left to ourselves, we are no match for the devil. 
he would completely consume us. And our only hope, and this is the good news, is that there is one mightier than he, and that is God himself. Verse 10, we are encouraged, aren't we, when facing him, Satan, to be strong in the Lord. And I love this, in the strength of his might. It's a wonderful way in the Greek of getting over the, the, the power of God's power, the immensity of God's strength, in the strength of his might. Peter says in one of his letters, and we are shielded by the power of God. It's a wonderful encouragement to us. So we're, we're, we're not going to be destroyed, and we have everything we need uh, to keep the evil one at bay and to make sure his strategies do not damage us as he hoped. We have God's power. But Paul makes it clear to the Ephesians here that God provides this power. God provides what we need in the battle with the evil one, but we have to put it to use. God unleashes this power in and through us against the evil one through what is called here our taking up of the armor of God. That reminds us straight away it's a battle, isn't it? Because you wear armor when going into battle. And we see in Ukraine at the moment, don't we, that NATO forces have provided the Ukraine with armor uh, to help them in the, the, the fight. And God uh, has given us armor, says Paul, for the battle. And Paul makes it quite clear it's wearing and using because there's both a wearing of the armor and a using of the armor, it's wearing and using the armor that is the key to victory. If we have it, if we use it, we'll be okay. If we don't, there'll be trouble. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You see, without the armor, you won't. With it, you will. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. It's a spiritual battle against a spiritual enemy and so we need spiritual armor. And what Paul does then uh, in the verses that follow is outline what is this armor that we have been given and that we are encouraged to make use of in the spiritual battle, the battle that rages in the life of this church uh, and in our own individual and family lives. And the items of the armor, the whole armor, um, they're, they're described for us, aren't they? Uh, if we look at them here in verse 14, you've got a belt, you've got a breastplate, verse 15, shoes, verse 16, a shield, 17, then you've got a helmet and you've got a sword uh, and prayer must be uh, employed with each and every item. They are the items of armour that Roman soldiers would have worn. And Paul very helpfully takes that image and applies it in the spiritual struggle. Uh, and tonight we're not going to have any time by any means to look at the whole armour of God, which is unfortunate in one sense because we're told you've got to put it all on. So to isolate one sort of goes against what Paul is saying really, but for time's sake, hopefully you'll allow me um, well, I can do all of them if you want, but perhaps you wouldn't like that. Um, I'll focus on just the one in verse 16 where Paul exhorts the Ephesians and us, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts 
of the evil one. So we're going to look at the shield of faith. First of all, what was the shield that the Roman soldiers would use in physical battle uh, with their uh, enemies? Well, the Romans would have been used to using two kinds of shield. The first type was small and round and would have been attached to the arm by two leather straps. And you would use this one in hand-to-hand combat. So you've got the enemy right here. You can almost reach out and touch him. Plus, you can literally reach out and touch him. And he can do the same to you. And he's got a sword. And he's trying to thrust that sword into you. And you've got this shield on your arm. And you're hopefully quite um, adept at using it like this to, to deflect the blows of the sword. Small, round, close uh, combat to defend against the sword. But that's not the shield Paul has in mind here. It was a second kind of shield, much bigger altogether. It was rectangular and was approximately four feet high and two and a half feet wide. So that's quite high because I'm just over six feet. So it's four feet high, so it's about two-thirds of my height. And the soldier would carry this into battle. It wouldn't be strapped to the arm. He would carry it into battle and hold it out in front of him. And it is a little bit simplistic, but may help, that it would be kind of what we see when the police, uh, the riot police, have their shields. You know, I don't know if you have riots in Clidach, but um, if, if there's a riot and bricks are being thrown or bottles or whatever, the police may turn up and they've got these tough shields and then they can put them up and anything hits it and deflects off it. Well, that's the kind of thing we are talking about. It was made of wood, bound together with iron, and covered in leather. And this was used not in close uh, quarters combat to defend from shield thrusts, but actually um, to protect yourself from arrows that the enemy would fire at you from a distance. Uh, And it's interesting, we have here, uh, they're talking about darts in verse 16. We're not talking about darts you play on television. And you'll see on television, you know, and trying to get 180 and so on. Arrows we're thinking of here. Um, I'm not very good at you know, that kind of thing, you know. Um, and uh, they're called flaming darts or flaming arrows, aren't they, in verse 16. And what would happen is that the enemy would take the arrow, dip it in pitch, set it on fire, and shoot it at the enemy. And so here come these arrows now. If you haven't got a shield... Here come these arrows over at you, and they come at quite a speed. They're pointed, obviously. They're on fire, so they're doubly dangerous because, obviously, if they hit you, not only will they pierce your skin and go into you and potentially damage your vital organs, but also you could get burned, of course, by the fact that they are on fire. You didn't want to get hit by one of these arrows. If they hit you, you're either going to be seriously injured or even die. And so the Roman soldier... Here come these arrows at him now, a volley of flaming arrows, would have his shield and he would crouch down behind it. And when he's crouched behind it, he's completely obscured from view. So here comes the arrow and it's coming and it can do a great deal of harm, but it hits the shield. And the shield takes the impact. And it's blunted, it's extinguished. Uh, The Romans would often soak the shield in water to put it out. And so the enemy, sorry, the arrow falls to the floor. It has done you no harm. 
Now, here's an important point. The soldier, the Roman soldier, could not stop the enemy firing those flaming arrows at him. He couldn't stop them coming at him. But he could prevent them from causing him any harm by using the shield to defend himself. Stuart Olliott said in his comment on this shield of faith, whatever the enemy fired at them had no effect. It came to nothing. Such was the value of the Roman shield. So it's a, a vital piece of equipment. They're all vital, this one no less. Uh, and that's the important point. Keep that in mind. They couldn't stop the arrows coming, but if they had the shield of faith, they wouldn't do them any damage. Now, Paul says that, metaphorically speaking, Satan has arrows that he sets on fire, puts them in the quiver, and shoots at the Christian, man, woman, boy, or girl. And those arrows, if they strike us, can cause us untold harm. What are they? These arrows, I'm talking about literal arrows now, of course, metaphorically, picture language. Well, these arrows that Satan has that he fires at us are lies. Uh, we just had a reference to that in one of the songs we sang, we'll stand against the devil's lies. And Satan is a liar. Uh, and it's, we're in a world of fake news, aren't we? And um, I can't think, what, was, what did one... Person going with truth, wasn't it? Um, oh, that's annoying. Anyway, fake, fake news, and uh, you know, where this is true and that's not true, and so on. And we've seen how damaging it can be when you believe fake news. Um, and uh, Satan is an expert in fake news. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. He's the originator of lies. He was the first one to lie, and all lies ultimately come from. Him. And if we're a liar, then that means we're actually following Satan, not God, if we are uh, a liar. And Satan lies. And Satan plants thoughts and ideas which are untrue, which are lies in our minds. And if they land in the mind and they take root in the mind, if we change the metaphor from an arrow for a moment, if they take root in the mind and grow and sprout and blossom in the mind, before you know it, we're in a real mess. Because, of course, our thinking determines our actions, doesn't it? And if we're thinking incorrectly because we believed Satan's lies, if we're thinking incorrectly, then we'll be acting incorrectly, uh, and our whole life will be damaged. So Satan speaks to us. He lies to us. And if we believe these lies, and if we take this fake news on board, then we're going to be in great difficulty. Let me give you a couple of these things that Satan will say, and they're lies. But he said them to me, and I wouldn't be surprised to find he said them to you as well. First of all, Satan will tell you that the sins you committed in the past still count against you. Before you became a Christian, uh, and sins you've brought to the Lord and confessed, and you've pleaded 
for God to forgive you, not because you deserve to be forgiven, but because Jesus Christ answered for those sins on your behalf at the cross. And you brought them, you've confessed them, you've clung to Jesus Christ for your forgiveness uh, of them. And God has declared them to be forgiven. And Satan comes along and says, but are they forgiven? And he'll bring them to your mind. Have you had those experiences where sometimes you hadn't thought about a particular thing you said or did for 15, 20 years? And all of a sudden, they're coming into your mind and you're thinking about that situation and the guilt of it comes back and you wonder whether they really have been dealt with. Satan is the accuser, we read in Revelation 12, of the brethren, of the brothers and sisters. He loves to come and to point out and to remind us of past sins and to stir up the sense of guilt and shame and to make us wonder, are they really dealt with? Have they really been forgiven? Or do they sort of continually hang over us like a, a nasty shadow? Then another lie Satan will tell us, not only will he tell us the sins you've committed in the past, somehow they still have an influence today. They're, they're, not, they're, they're not dead in a sense. They're not buried and gone. They're, they're still there and they're, they're still in God's record and he still thinks about them. And the second lie Satan will tell us is that he'll say, because you still sin as a Christian, God is angry with you. Because you still sin, even though you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, things are not quite right with you and God. And in fact, it may be you're not even a Christian because you're sinning. And he loves to highlight, doesn't he, what we have done. He slanders us before God, goes to God and tells God, look at what they've done. And he comes to us and he slanders us in our own conscience. Look at what you've done. Look at what you've said. You can't be a Christian. God won't love you now. You've blown it, perhaps. You, you, God will give you up. God will turn you away. God's angry. God's wrath is still upon you because you still sin as a Christian. So those sins you committed in the past, you've brought them. You've confessed them. You've pleaded for God's forgiveness on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ for them. And Satan says, ah, but they, they're still in God's book. Uh, and they still count, and they cast a long shadow. Or he says, look, there you are again. You've blown it. All right, God forgave those sins, your pre-conversion sins. God forgave them, but you've continued to sin, even as a Christian. Less now, perhaps, and so on, but you've continued to sin. Oh, it's, it's spoiled the work of grace that God has begun in your life. And God is undoing what he started in you, because you've, you haven't carried on as you should have. Another lie Satan will tell us is that God doesn't really love us. We're in a particular situation, a trial, a difficulty, and Satan will come and he'll say to us, I thought God said he loved you. Doesn't look much like, does it? Like that. If he loves you, why does he continually seem to turn a deaf ear to your cries for help? If he loves you, why has he allowed you to be in this very difficult circumstance? Why has he allowed your spouse to die and you're left alone? Why has he allowed your children to turn away from him and to bring great pain and sorrow into the family? 
Why has he allowed you to lose your job and all the implications that has for day-to-day living? Why has he allowed such chaos in the church or in the world? Why has he not acted to help you in a particular situation? And he causes us these lies, these seeds of doubt in our minds to question God's goodness. I think we'll just look at those here. I've got some others I could bring for time's sake. Just look at those tonight. This sense that your sins, even though you've confessed them, ah, they're, they're so bad, you see, that no, it still isn't right. They still count against you somehow. Or that you're a Christian now, but perhaps you're not any longer. God is giving up on you. God is disappointed in you. God is angry with you because of your sin. And that God doesn't love you after all. It's all a, a, a sham. Because where is this love? If uh, he really loves you, why are you in these circumstances? These thoughts come. These lies come. And they can come out of nowhere. John Bunyan uh, talked about this. Being assaulted with all these thoughts. And sometimes blasphemous thoughts about God. Where do they come from? They come from Satan. He puts them in our minds. And in our hearts. And in our consciences. He slanders us to God. He slanders us to ourselves. He slanders God to us. What are we to do in response to all this? When we're faced with these arrows, these fiery arrows, and you can see if we believe those lies, if we take those on board and begin to run with them, you can see, can't you, what damage they can do. If if as a Christian you're laboring with this thought that the sins of the past haven't really been forgiven, haven't really been removed, they're still sort of there and they're still influencing things in my relationship with God and uh, or, or if I said, we're trying to live the Christian life and feeling that no, perhaps because I've sinned today, God is less happy with me. God loves me less. God is angry because I sinned particularly grievously this past week. You can see what damage, what burden, what heaviness that brings upon us. Or if we're in a difficult situation when we really need to lean on the love of God, Satan is convincing us that it's a sign that we have no access to the love of God. You can see the damage, and we can't stop them coming. We cannot stop those thoughts arising in our mind. What do we do, though? Well, Paul tells us here, we take up the shield of faith in all circumstances. We take up the shield of faith so that when these thoughts come, we can cut them off. We can get rid of them. We can deflect them. The shield of faith, what does that mean? Well, faith here means to put our trust in. So, for example, somebody might say to you, and it's always a bad sign when they have to say it to you, have faith in me. Because if they have to say have faith in me, it suggests that there's probably you haven't got much faith in them and there's good reason for that. Or we hear today, don't we, they've got faith in me. Or I've got faith in you. So I I quite like watching The Chase on TV, you know. ITV quiz show at five o'clock. And often the other contestant, because they work as a team to win the money, and the other contestant would say to the one who's gone up, you can go for the higher money, I've got faith in you. It means I put my confidence in you. I believe in you. I put my trust, I pin everything upon you here. And to take up the shield of faith means to put our 
trust our faith in God and particularly what he has said. To have the shield of faith means to say, God, I believe what you have said. I believe what you tell me. Because here's the point, Satan tells us one thing, God tells us another. And we have to make a choice. Who are we going to believe? Who are we going to listen to? Who are we going to put our confidence in? Who are we going to put our faith in? So if we apply that principle of Satan says one thing, but God says the exact opposite, and we've got to decide which one we're going to listen to, which one we're going to respond to, put that uh, to action and, and to work in those three scenarios I mentioned to you just a moment ago. So the first one where, um, we, we, Satan comes to us and he tells us those sins you've committed, they, they still somehow count against you. You've asked for forgiveness, you've pleaded the work of Christ for your salvation, but, but they're so bad, you see, that they still count and, and they come back to your mind and they're in God's mind as well. And he's thinking about them and he is influenced by them. Now, what does God say about that? What does God say in his word about this whole matter of sins from before? could be yesterday or whatever, sins from before that you've pleaded for forgiveness on the basis of Christ for. What does God say has happened to those? Well, we open our scriptures and God says, I have removed those transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west. They are not belonging to you anymore. They are not regarded as being yours now. They have gone. They were put upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That picture of being carried away as far as the east is from the west is from the Day of Atonement when there'd be a scapegoat. That's where the phrase comes from. Of course, um, Tinder coined that. The scapegoat. Uh, and the priest would confess over that goat all the sins of the people. And so the sins were going from the people onto that goat. And then the priest would take the goat out into the wilderness, let it loose, and the goat would wander away in the wilderness, and it would never be seen again. And that was a picture for the people of your sins are taken away. They don't belong to you now. They're not clinging to you, as it were. They've gone. God has got rid of them. God has removed them. And of course, that's what happened at the cross. That picture, or that what happened on the Day of Atonement with the scapegoat was a picture of Calvary because Jesus was the scapegoat there. And the father put his hands on the head of his son, as it were, and confessed over him all the sins of his people, putting on him the sins of us all. And Christ carried those sins away into the wilderness. And they're gone. They're no longer belonging to us. That's what God says. Satan says they are. They belong to us still somehow. Uh, and when we come before God, it's almost as if we've still got them in our hands. God says, no, they're gone. I've removed them. My sins are gone. We used to sing a chorus back in the valleys when I was a boy. My sins are gone. Gone, gone. Far away. Far away. For the blood has washed them away. We open God's word and we find that it says he has blotted out our transgressions like a thick cloud and our sins he remembers no more. And that means in the original he no longer takes account of them. When he's dealing with us, our sins are no longer a factor in the equation because they've been dealt with by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took them. 
he answered for them and they are no longer a factor in our relationship with God. We are blameless in his sight because the sins that have been taken away have been replaced by a righteousness that has been given and we are right with God and we are accepted by him. So Satan says they still count, they're still there, they're still a problem, they still spoil everything. And God says, not true. I've removed them, I've blotted them out, I've cast them into the depths of the sea, I've put them behind my back, I've cleansed them, I remember them, I take account of them, no more. And so I ask you, who are you going to believe about that whole matter of where you stand tonight if you have confessed your sin and pleaded for forgiveness because of the work of Christ? Are you going to listen to Satan or are you going to listen to God? And the answer you give to that question will determine whether Satan's lies damage or whether they're deflected and we live a joyful Christian life in the joy of sins forgiven. The second one I said, when Satan says, what does he say about our present sins? Here we are as Christians now and we we still sadly fail in areas, don't we? And, And we're grieved by that. And Satan comes along and he loves to get us when we're on our knees, not in prayer, but in despair as it were. And he loves to come along and to rub salt in the wounds and to say, God's angry with you. He sent it, and I've heard Christians say this about themselves or to others. Oh, it's dreadful, you see, God is so angry because, you know, look, look at what he did. He sent his son, and his son suffered so much for you, and this is how you've treated it. Oh, he's very angry today. Is that what the Bible says? About the fact that here we are, we're Christians, we've sinned, we've failed again, and we're grieved by that. We don't need somebody to come along uh, and do Satan's work and tell us, oh, God's very angry because look how ungrateful you've been for all he's done for you at Calvary. What does the Bible say? Well, we read this in Romans 8 from verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so today, Jesus Christ pleads our cause at the cross, uh, sorry, at the throne of God in heaven. And so when we sin as a believer, and we come afresh in repentance and faith, Jesus Christ secures our forgiveness at the throne of grace. The wrath is taken away. Our cause is represented. The work is not undone. We are still in grace and under God's favor. One of the best things I ever heard outside the Bible, but talking about the Bible, was from Sinclair Ferguson, where Sinclair Ferguson said that we talk about somebody falling from grace. What that means is somebody was in good standing uh, and they did something bad and that's it. Now they're out of it. Fallen from grace, you know. Politician caught in a scandal or whatever. Fallen from grace. And Sinclair Ferguson said, as Christians, we never fall from grace. We fall into grace. That when as believers we mess up, when as believers we sin, we fall into God's grace and into the ministry of our great high priest. Another great thing I heard 
Thomas Goodwin, I think it was, the Puritan, said when, you may be in there, Mark, was at the Ballot Minister's Conference, Michael Reeves mentioned it. See if you remember now. All right. Not Thomas Goodwin, no, Michael Reeves said it. But he said, what's the first thing Christ feels when his people sin? And I know what I thought. I thought, I'm listening to Satan. I thought, anger and disappointment. And then he said, no, actually, it's mercy. For his beloved child, who again is suffering the pain that sin brings. And Jesus Christ comes actually to comfort the fallen believer. Uh, and to exercise his high priestly intercessory ministry. So don't listen to Satan that because as a believer you haven't been what you should be. God is angry and God comes with a big stick. God is full of mercy. And God stoops to you where you are. And he doesn't break bruised reeds. And he doesn't quench smoldering flax. And it's then that Jesus Christ's intercessory ministry kicks in. Before the throne of God above I have a strong a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. John, in his first letter, writing to Christians, says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's what Jesus Christ has been put at the right hand of the Father to do, amongst other things, to intercede for fallen believers. Satan says, that's it. God isn't pleased now. Uh, it's all been spoiled. The Bible says, repent, believe, you have a great high priest, you are secure in him. And then thirdly and finally, uh, remember Satan tells us in times of difficulty, it shows that God doesn't love you. It shows that God isn't good. But we open the scriptures and what do we find God saying about this whole matter of his love and difficulties? Well, we find the exact opposite. The Bible tells us that because God loves us, he allows us to experience trials. Because God loves us so much that he has one magnificent purpose in mind for us. And it's not to give us an easy life. It's something much greater than that. It's not to give us loads of money and possessions and so on. He's got something much better in mind for us than that. His mind, his purpose, his goal is to completely transform us from within so that we reflect Jesus Christ. That's the greatest thing that can ever happen to a human being is to become, having once been a sinner, to become like Jesus Christ. And the Bible says the way God does that is through the crucible of affliction. And so God loves us that he shapes us through difficulties into Christ's image. So when you're in the difficult experience, that's not a sign that God doesn't love you. It's the perfect proof that God does love you and is perfecting you through suffering. And in his love, he will help you and his grace will be sufficient for you. So Satan will fire his arrows 
You can't do anything about that. Praise God, the day will come when uh, sin, my worst enemy before, shall vex my eyes and ears no more. My inward foes shall all be slain, and Satan won't break my peace again. All his arrows will be taken from him. He won't be able to fire them at us. But for now, they come. What are we going to do when they come? Where Paul says, don't let them hit the mark. Don't listen to them. Don't pay any attention to them. When they come, don't just say, no, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to listen to that. Paul says, listen to something else. Take up the shield of faith. Read God's word. Or think about what you already know from God's word. And listen to God. He is entirely trustworthy. The psalmist says, the Lord's word is flawless. Who are you going to listen to? The father of lies or the God of all truth? And I'll finish with this. We can help one another in the battle. Because when the arrows would come over, the Roman soldiers would often link their shields uh, in a sort of a testudo formation to protect each other from these arrows. And we can do that for one another. And we should be continually speaking the truth of God's word into each other's lives. What are we talking about when we get together as believers? You know, we're not to be holy Joes in that sense. It's not that we can only talk about the Bible and we can only talk about Jesus Christ and somehow we've, you know, we're, we're dreadful people if we talk about football or the weather or whatever. But if we're never speaking the word of truth into each other's lives and if we're never bringing the truth of the Bible into our conversations and feeding each other's minds and hearts and consciences with the word of truth, then we're not helping each other in the spiritual battle. I need you to speak these truths to me, just as you need me to speak these truths to you. And you need to be speaking these truths to one another so that when Satan's lies come, you have the true word of Scripture to listen to. Paul says we are to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. May God help us then to stand against the devil's lies. Not only the lies he's telling to unbelievers, but the lies he's telling to us as God's people, seeking to spoil and damage and frustrate this great work of grace and liberty and redemption and joy and peace that God has begun in our lives. He wants to ruin all that. Let's not allow him to do it. Let's live in the freedom that God's word brings us. Let's live in the hope and the joy and the peace of the gospel that we find in the scriptures. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Put your trust in God's word, what he has said. And if you do that, you will extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil 